I invite you now to turn with me to the letter to the Hebrews, where we, for this Christmas season, are being guided by just the first four verses of this letter, because it is so packed with an amazing description of who Christ is and why he's come and why we can place our trust in him. So this is Hebrews chapter one, and I'll read all four of the opening verses. It says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And that'll conclude our reading for this morning. And for us, we're focused in on verse three today and really just the first part of verse three to consider what it means that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So we said this last week, but we're uh, by focusing in here in Hebrews in these first four verses, we're kind of looking at Christmas from heaven's perspective. And so we're not going over all of the details of the family traveling to Bethlehem and then who was present at the birth and how they responded uh, in, in light of that birth. All of that is good and great information and we hope that in your own devotional time and singing of carols, you're being reminded of all of those truths. But here, we're sort of looking back on all of that but considering uh, what that means Uh, from the perspective of heaven, that who was it that was born? Why was it that there was worship in the heavens at this young baby? And how could they celebrate so quickly the coming of a new king? Where, Where did all of that come from? And part of that is we believe that Jesus was not simply a unique baby different from all babies or a unique human different from all humans, but that he came from heaven to earth so that what we celebrate at Christmas is not the beginning of his story, but he existed before that, and it is part of his story that he came into our world. But to then really appreciate the wonder of his birth is to recognize that he was, as we said last week, the eternal Christ. He was there at the beginning. He was the one who created all things. And so here that continues to be emphasized. But I saw a quote from an apologist, I believe he's Australian, he might be British, I mix those two up uh, often, his name is Glenn. But he said, Christians do believe in the virgin birth of the Son of God. And some people find that hard to believe, that as we saying of the virgin birth of someone. He said, but if you're not a Christian and you're an atheist, you believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Christians believe in the virgin birth of the Son of God. If you don't believe that, most people are left with believing in the virgin birth of all things. Because if it all just happened at some point in time with no rhyme or reason and is completely uh, non-reproducible, 
and that's the story that you believe in, that in and of itself is still pretty miraculous. So his rhetorical question was, choose your miracle. <laughs> but you can't escape believing in something miraculous. Either all of this is from nothing, or somebody created it, and that person who created all of it can enter into our world under any terms he wants. Well, that's not as hard to believe. <laughs> if he's the one who made it all, and every wonder we discover is actually a reflection of his creativity and his power, then he can then come into the world in any way that reflects that beauty and that power. And when we realize that, the rest of the Christmas story becomes uh, more believable to us when we realize who it is that has really come. But hear this first phrase for us today. He is the radiance of the glory of God. I mean, there is so much packed into that statement. This author um, is assuming many people who are familiar with the Old Testament, and they know this, the reality of God's glory being so great that no human being has the ability to see it fully or to be in its presence. And in their stories told throughout generations of Moses encountering the burning bush and then having the sense that this is holy ground and so he had to take his shoes off or when the temple was dedicated in the dedication of the temple it says the glory came down so that there was such a density to the fog the glory that was present that nobody made it in that day because it just overwhelmed all of them or even as we went through the Ten Commandments and saw that at the very end that as Moses was receiving it, there was so much lightning and thunder and fire that everybody in the nation was scared to go up the mountain. They just had this sense that if, if God were to really show who he was, we wouldn't be able to handle it which is then we see again and again as angels appear on the scene at different points in time in the story, the most repeated phrase that they utter to humans is, don't be afraid, fear not, because it's a terrifying thing to encounter the real and living God or the hosts of heaven. And so, so much of what we have told to us in the stories of the Old Testament is God revealing himself in partial ways that we could handle so that we would not be overwhelmed by it. And then even in the, the design within the temple of uh, the Ark of the Covenant, there's uh, on the top of the Ark, there's cherubim, and then there's a place uh, above them that is considered by the people of Israel as where the glory of God would ultimately rest on earth. And there, there's no image, but there's this uh, beautiful representation that the glory is so great that even the angels, it's not just that we can't fully uh, receive it in our own createdness, but even the angels can't. So then in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah gets this vision of the throne of God, and he talks about the cherubim and the seraphim, he talks about them saying, holy, holy, holy is our God. And then when he describes them, that, that he describes them as declaring God's holiness while also having to cover their own faces and covering their bodies as they're declaring the holiness of our God. 
Like his glory outshines the sun. That's, that's what we're getting at. If you and I can't on a sunny day stand outside and we can't handle looking right at it and his glory is greater than that, then we realize how limited we are, how frail we are. We can't handle it if he were to show it in all of its fullness. And each of the Gospels tells us about a point in Jesus' adult life when he takes just a few of his disciples and he takes them up a mountain and he shows them his glory. When he's transfigured, they just get a little bit of it. But it's enough for them to say, can we just stay here? (laughs) Can we just not go anywhere else? Can we build tents here? This is good. And so John actually starts his whole gospel by sort of retelling the transfiguration story when he says, let me tell you about this Jesus. He was the word in the beginning and the word that made all things and we have seen his glory. And so he wants the whole world to learn about this Jesus. So now when the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, say what does that mean I don't understand all of it but it's awesome like he is the brightness of the light of that glory he is the the heat from the fire he is amazing it's an indication of the beauty of Jesus that if that glory that the world was not able to behold without some form of protection Like we can't look at the sun without eyeglasses on. Jesus is beautiful. Everything that is wonderful and great and true and good about God is evident in Jesus. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And I don't know how often, even when we talk about Christ, that we might highlight his beauty to other people. But we should. Because we all long to see greatness. We all are stunned when we encounter beauty, whether that beauty is out in nature or in physical feats that we see other people do. Uh, As just a fan of sports, uh, it's now actually getting a little bit annoying, but there's this regular conversation when we see greatness in a player, then all the conversation uh, that flows is, is this the greatest of all time, right? And so people being referred to as the goat is the greatest of all time is just this phrase that feels like it's popped up uh, way more than it should. Uh, but part of it is this sense of it's a, it's a beautiful thing to behold greatness. It's fun. This past week in basketball, uh, Steph Curry broke the record for the most amount of threes uh, of any individual player. And the guy whose record he broke was in the stands to watch him break his own record. And he's done it so many years less playing than Ray Allen has. And so there's this sense of like, I mean, how many is he going to get? Like, and are we watching this? And then is this then going to be the greatest that there's ever been? Like, that's how it all gets, you know, pumped up on sports media. Whether it's going to be the greatest it ever is or anybody else will surpass the record, there is this sense of, I want to see it. Like, if it's going to happen, I want to be there. If I could get a front row seat, 
if I could be in the room, if I could be in the stadium, don't you want to see the glory of the Lord? Even if it's just a glimpse. And most of us are drawn to that. We're drawn to either read books by people that everybody tells us, this is the greatest author, you need to read this book, or we watch movies that people tell us, this is an amazing director, this is an amazing actor. And we're drawn to see and witness and observe greatness. And as Christians, we believe Jesus is the greatest. He is the most beautiful. If we're gonna like pause and just stare, he's the most worthy of our reflection, of our pausing, of our being still and saying, I wanna hear that again or I wanna see that again. I wanna see that from another angle. Hit the replay button on what I am discovering because he's that beautiful. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Then it says he's the exact imprint of his nature. The, the language of imprint is very much what we would use to like imprint something on a coin. And so uh, even in ancient times, if whoever the Caesar was in power, you might have had a coin that had an, an image of him imprinted into the coin to say this is real money. And even in our money today, uh, like if, if you still use the paper versions of it or the coin versions of it, there's an indication, an imprint on it that this is official U.S. currency. And so there's usually some person on there who has some significance in our nation's story. And so here the author is saying that Jesus has that imprint. And it's not a partial imprint. It's not a blurry imprint. It's the exact imprint. Nothing missing. Nothing lost. Nothing left out, exactly as it should be. It's imprinted. But what is imprinted is not just the image of Jesus. What he says is it's the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus has the exact imprint of the nature of his father. So here what's being pointed to is the integrity of Jesus the moral excellence and perfection of Jesus. So he's the beauty of the radiance of the glory and he's the perfect, obedient, holy, ethical representative of his nature. I had the experience, it was now the first trip that I took about five years ago to Serbia where I was gonna be meeting a relative that I had no memory of ever meeting before, but an uncle of mine in California reached out to a cousin of his and then said, hey, uh, this, your cousin's son is gonna be in the country and you need to meet him and he's gonna be at this hotel and he gave him the address and so it was set up for the two of us to meet each other. And my uncle only told me this then, I think the second or the third trip I was there, but he had a little bit of anxiety sort of coming to the hotel because he's like, I've never met this guy before. Like, how am I going to know who, when I get into the lobby, like, who's the person that's waiting for me? And then his own words, he said, when he got closer, and most of it was, you know, windows that he could then see through, and he said, and I looked through the window, and I saw my cousin. And so I knew exactly who it was. And so he was saying, he knew my dad when he was a lot younger, and I resemble him enough 
that he no longer was worried which one of the 20 people in the room were the person he was supposed to meet, but that there was enough resemblance that he could say, oh, that, that's who I'm supposed to meet. I am not the exact imprint of my father. I have characteristics of multiple people, but that's sort of the demonstrate, that's, that's a part of what is uh, here in this verse, the exact imprint of his nature. But here with Jesus, with no diminishment, with no blemish, and here again, often in our world, we don't put beauty and morality often together. Kind of separate those. And if anything, a lot of times in our aesthetic fields, we push the boundaries of morality through our art, and we celebrate that. But the author of Hebrews and most of the biblical writers put these two things together as absolutely integral. Immorality is ugly. Immorality and perfection and holiness and righteousness and justice is beautiful. And they're supposed to go together. And in Jesus they do. He's the exact He's the radiance of the glory and is the exact imprint of his nature so he is fully, fully trustworthy. And that leads us to this last point, which is if this is really true about him, then we should be feeling sort of the invitation of Jesus. If he's this beautiful and he's this good, then why not choose to follow him? <laughs> why not choose to be a witness of him? Why ascribe any more glory to somebody else or something else? Why get excited about anything else more than him? But if we become persuaded he is that beautiful and he is that good, there's a, a gravitational pull in that to follow after him. To say, I do want to know you more and I want to become more like you. And I'm open to all the ways that you would want to shape and guide and lead my life. If you don't think he's that beautiful and you're not sure if he's that trustworthy, you won't make that kind of a choice. You won't respond to the invitation. But there's no way in our hearts and minds to not be persuaded that he is this glorious and he is this good without then that desire to follow him. So I found this a really helpful quote from Jackie Hill Perry uh, talking about God and his holiness and it applies here. She says, if God is holy then he can't sin. If God can't sin, then he can't sin against me. If he can't sin against me, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? And if Jesus is the radiance of that glory and the exact imprint of that nature, and so if we believe about Jesus, that he can never and will never sin against us. Shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy person we could ever follow? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to hear of your greatness and glory. And then to be amazed that later in the letter uh, that he says that it's your desire to then bring many sons and daughters to glory.
that you are inviting us and drawing us in to a new reality, to remake us from the inside out, to save us from our own ugliness and sinfulness and lack of integrity and to be made new in you, to enjoy you in all of your fullness and beauty. So Father, we pray that you would help us to be in awe of you and that in so doing that, you would draw us to greater and greater trust of you. In your name we pray.